Good morning, brothers and sisters. Great uh, to see you who are here in the room. Thank you for being here. And uh, hello to everybody online on Facebook and YouTube. After the sermon uh, today and a few announcements, we'll be doing another Q&A. So if you have any questions you'd like to send in, you can use this number, 480-359-1916, to text in any questions, observations. It could be about the passage, something we didn't get to, or something in the message We'd love to take a few minutes to try to answer some of those after uh, the gathering today. We'll be in Acts chapter 15. If you have a Bible, please take it and turn with me to that chapter. If you're here in the room and you don't have one, there are some blue Bibles in the back. They are clean Bibles. That's a weird phrase I never thought I would utter. There are clean Bibles in the back. Feel free to jump up and get one if you'd like. We're in Acts chapter 15. If you're new to the scriptures, Acts is the book in the Bible that fills in the time frame from Jesus' resurrection and ascension until uh, the next several decades of the church. It tells us how the gospel spread all around the ancient world, and it fills in the gap for us between the biographies of Jesus' life and then the presence of lots and lots and lots of churches that everything else in the New Testament is written to explains to us how that happened. So a very important book. We are halfway through it together. Uh, About 10 days ago, I created my first Twitter account. How many of you are Twitter tweeters? Twit, twit, twits? How how do you? Twits, yes. How many of you are Twitter users? Several, yes. Um, Since there's so much kindness and deference, and generosity going around, I thought I would find another source of good intake for those things. Actually, my hope was uh, with so much limited connectivity in terms of interaction with you in person that I would try to look up some of you and keep contact with you that way. So if you're on Twitter and want to follow, tweet with me. I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly. You can look me up at Chuck D. Newkirk. Chuck D. Newkirk. Twitter is famous for uh, quick jabs and intense fighting. I quickly learned that that reputation is not unearned. Uh, People seem on Twitter to fight indiscriminately about anything and everything and about things I think they might not actually talk like that in person. In many ways... Church, uh, we seem as a society to have lost the ability to disagree civilly, to show charity to the other, to give deference to someone who disagrees, to analyze an issue from multiple sides and come to a consensus decision. One of the the many downsides to this uh, verbal vitriol is that we're becoming accustomed to everything being a source of fighting. We seem to be able to fight about literally anything and everything. The problem with that is that when you argue about everything, then sometimes the things that are most worthy of disagreement actually get lost in the unimportant banter of everything else. We Christians are people who understand that there 
are issues about which there should not be any sense that this is a hill to die on. And yet we're also people who understand that there are issues that are worthy of choosing to die on that hill. Today in Acts chapter 15, we come to perhaps the most central issue that is worthy of humble defense. Let me put it in the form of a question. Uh, What does it take from an individual to become included in the kingdom of God? Or to put that a different way, is salvation by grace alone, like the song we sung, or is salvation by grace plus some effort on our part? That's the question we come to in Acts chapter 15. And hopefully you can see why that's such a significant issue. The gospel, you see, must be protected and preserved. And we've come to the watershed moment in the book of Acts where that issue is really laid forth, cut open down the middle, opened for us to analyze. And the church must decide what it would convene and what it would clarify about this gospel message. Let's read first, starting in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order them to keep the law of Moses. Paul and Barnabas have just concluded their first great mission trip. If you're unfamiliar with it and would like to learn a little bit more, you can read the the previous two chapters of the book of Acts later today, chapter 13 and 14. After two to three years of traveling from city to city to city, sharing the good news of Jesus and starting new churches and strengthening those churches, these two missionaries had returned back to their home church in in Antioch and shared all that God had done. And there in that church, a major issue arose. Apparently, a a small group of people from the church in Jerusalem had without consent or direction or empowerment from their leaders, taken it upon themselves to leave their church in Jerusalem to travel to Antioch and to, quote, correct the doctrine that the church in Antioch was teaching. When they got there, essentially they said, Unless you follow all the Old Testament laws, 
then you cannot be saved. Basically, if we strip the cultural issues away, their position was that you must become Jewish if you would become Christian. In their minds, to be included in the kingdom of God meant you've got to trust in Jesus and you've got to observe all the Old Testament laws typified in the commandment to be circumcised. Now, if you've been with us on this journey through Acts thus far, it would seem rather confusing as to why this was such a controversy. I mean, for 14 chapters, we've heard the gospel of grace over and over and over and over. After all, this gospel was sweeping all over the known world. And it was a gospel of grace, not a gospel of works. So why was it even an issue at all? Especially this far into the book. Well, to, to demand adherence to any laws for salvation and to assume that someone can actually do that is to undo the very reason for the death of Jesus Christ. It is not a gospel at all. But these men who came from Jerusalem to Antioch caused quite a stir. And I think at least in part that was because they came from the original church. And therefore it was assumed they came with some kind of unique position of authority. Now before we talk about why they were wrong and why it matters, let's take a few minutes to wrestle with what was happening before their very eyes. Everything today that anyone tweets is done in a certain context. It's done with a certain background knowledge and experience. And the same is certainly true in the scriptures. Since God first called Abraham way, way, way back in Genesis, some 2,000 years before Acts 15, the Jews were God's chosen people. This was the group of people among all the peoples who lived on the earth that God said uniquely, you're mine. I've chosen you. To you, I will give the law and the prophets and the land. These were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But with the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the great gathering of people, of all people groups, promised in the Old Testament was coming true. By the time we reach the events of Acts 15, roughly a decade has transpired since Acts chapter 10. Now what's significant about Acts 10? Acts 10, you may remember, is when Peter and Cornelius had their interchange in which God made it abundantly clear that Gentile and Jew alike can be part of the people of God. It's an incredible moment in the history of the church. But now a decade's passed. And so think with me, if you would, about this from their point of view. At least experientially, the Jews in Jerusalem could have assumed that the Gentiles 
in Acts chapter 10 would be the exception, not the norm. Surely the Jews would remain the majority and the Gentiles would be the minority. And so the church in Jerusalem would be the most important one. And all the customs and laws would remain in place that they held so dear. Surely some might have wrongly assumed the church of Jesus Christ will be a Jewish church with some Gentiles as a side dish. But now, a decade's passed, persecution has scattered the church, and what's different in Acts 15 than it was in Acts 10? Well, the scales are starting to tip. Paul and Barnabas' mission had been wildly successful at starting many, many Gentile churches. And so the gravitational pull of the church was moving from Jerusalem out to the Gentile world. If they weren't already, the Jewish Christians were now becoming the minority. And churches like the church in Antioch were becoming the majority. Friends, what happens when the majority is in process of becoming the minority? Well, all the same stuff we see happen in the world will tend to happen in the church. Now, I don't say any of this to question the motives of these people who traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch, but rather to explain their context. I think it helps fill in the gaps of why this was such an issue. It's because of becoming clear church would be made up predominantly of Gentiles. And so concerned were these men that they would, without the blessing of their elders and apostles, take a trip to go teach the doctrine as they saw it. Before we go on, just a quick note here of application. Church, it, it has been true historically, and it remains true today, that the greatest threat to the purity and health of the church lay not from the world, but from the church itself. Our biggest problems are not out there. They're in here. This was true here in Acts chapter 15, and it's still true today. We have become so concerned with culture wars and the loss of political power that we are in some ways neutering the church. Whoever sits in the Oval Office come January will have absolutely no bearing on the success of the church of Jesus Christ. None whatsoever. The real threat weakening churches is not those big bad sinners out there, but rather the big bad sinners in here. Verse 2 tells us that the debate in this church was significant. And so, after much discussion in the church in Antioch, they decided, hey, we're not going to settle this issue in-house. We need help. Let's go to the experts. Let's go back where this all started. Let's head back to Jerusalem and meet with the elders there. 
If you ever take the time to read some church history, you'll find a consistent pattern. And it's rather counterintuitive. We see it here in Acts 15. It's this. What actually drives the, the solidification of sound, helpful, true, biblical doctrine is the presence of false doctrine. You see, when there's broad agreement doctrinally, there's no reason to codify that in statements of faith. But when there is false teaching that creeps in, then that's when there's a need to codify consensus. This is what's happened over and over and over and over again. That's what's here happening in Acts 15. Let's read what happened when they reached the church in Jerusalem. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there was much debate, Peter stood up. There's a surprise. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about what happened in Acts 10. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Isn't it amazing all these years later that we're still grappling so much with the distinctions we make between each other, particularly the distinctions over our color of skin? In the church... It ought not be that way. Amen? Amen? Verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. All the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. That's referring to Acts 13 and 14, if you'd like to learn more about that. After they finished, finished, uh, after they had spinach and finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is the Aramaic name for Simon, who's Peter, that's not confusing, Simeon had related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. That's all that false teaching does, by the way. It just troubles people. It's no help whatsoever. But verse 20 should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had 
been in every city, those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. You'll notice as you look back over these verses that the gospel of grace was disputed, that there was much debate. And then the gospel of grace was defended. We'll look at three people who spoke in particular. And then finally, in what is certainly the most understood, misunderstood aspect of the passage, the gospel of grace was displayed. So, Disputed, defended, displayed. First, let's start with disputed. We've already talked about the dispute. Is one made right with God based on what God does? Or is one made right with God based on what God does and what we do? That's the question. Now, we've covered this extensively as a church, particularly when we studied the book of Galatians. And Galatians is entirely about that. If you weren't here during that portion of Church on Mill's past, you could look back last year and listen to several months' worth of sermons on that topic. So this morning, instead of re- rehashing that, what I'd love to do is just take a minute to speak to non-Christians and address you in particular. The dispute in the church was about how someone could be made right with God and how someone can be included among God's people. Frankly, that might not feel like the most prominent pressing issue on your mind and heart. But friend, I would encourage you this morning to at least for a few minutes reconsider the priority with which you've put that issue The most important thing about you is where you stand with God. God is your creator. And as your creator, he's in charge. Every other issue in life pales in insignificance compared with the question of where are you with God. You see, you were created to know, to love, to enjoy, to obey God. But like everyone else, me included at the front of the line, you have gone your own way. You've rejected him in favor of yourself. And that has caused a fracturing in that relationship with God. And so on what conditions can that relationship be repaired? What does it require from you? That's what these People were debating in this very important meeting in the church in Jerusalem. Three different parties spoke up. The whole group discussed. We don't know how long this meeting went on. Subsequent meetings of the council or of churches in the future, some of those would go on for months and months and months. But however long this meeting went, eventually three different groups of people stood up and address the crowd. And as each spoke, the gospel of grace was defended. Unsurprisingly, we all chuckled at it, Peter spoke up first in verse 7. He talked about what God had done about a decade before among the Gentiles. Look closely at verse 7. It says that they were to hear the word of the gospel 
and believe. That's Peter's answer to the question, what must one do to be saved? How do you get back in a position of being right with God? Peter just says, well, you've got to hear the gospel and choose to believe it. That's it. Notice there's no works there. There's no obeying the Old Testament law. It's simply hearing and trusting. Down in verse 11, he states so clearly that people are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. To expect the Gentiles to trust Jesus and obey the law before they could be saved would be to demand from Gentiles what Jews themselves had been unable to do. You see, while the commands of God are good and right and perfect, no one is able to obey all of them. No one except Jesus. And so, for Peter, the answer to the question was clear. Only grace can bring us in because we have all failed to obey except Jesus. Now, Peter sat down, and next, the second group stood up, Barnabas and Paul. And because we've talked about them so much the last several weeks, as we've looked at chapters 13 and 14, we'll just say that they agreed. But James, I'd love to focus on, the last person who stood up. James was one of Jesus' brothers, which we know from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that James himself had at one point essentially said, Jesus, you're crazy. They ought to lock you up. You're nuts. I don't believe in you. And yet now, after the resurrection, James has seen all the proof he needed. James believes. So James stood up. He made his defense of the gospel, and that's what pushed things to a conclusion. Now, you may notice that part of that passage was indented and, and pushed over in your Bibles. Verses 16 and 17. Friend, whenever you're in the Scriptures and there's a section like that, that's the editor's way of telling you this comes from somewhere else in the Bible. Those two verses come from Amos chapter 9. In Amos chapter 9, it was declared that God would send the Messiah, a deliverer, a rescuer, and that this Messiah would come and that when he would come, then the Gentiles would be included among the people of God. So in other words, James says, look guys, there's no dispute here. The Old Testament itself told us that this is exactly what would happen and that it happens by grace and grace alone. And so, friend, if you've not yet trusted Christ, if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, then today that can change. It can change forever. I say it with a big smile on my face. I'm realizing you can't see. You need not resolve to do anything. You're not going to earn your way in by 
coming to church amid COVID or watching online when there's better things to tune into. You're not going to stop enough bad habits or start enough good ones. Friend, the only way to be made right with God is by grace. To take any other position is to take a a, a position of massive misunderstanding about God. Because you see, God himself has met the entrance requirements to be back in a right relationship with him. You need just believe that Jesus came and died and rose again. And that by turning from a life without him to life with him, you will be given new life. That's what Peter said. That's what Barnabas said. That's what Paul said. That's what the whole Jerusalem council agreed on. And that's what every true church ever since has taught. That's what every word in the Bible rightly understood says. Grace and grace alone. And so if you don't know Jesus, then I would ask you today, why not come? Whether at home or here in the room, why not believe today? The Father's arms are open wide. You need only trust. That's it. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible and who've been with us in this journey up until this point in the book of Acts, so far, I haven't said anything surprising. This is one of those times when you just nod your head if you want to be kind, but inside you're thinking, yeah, I already heard that. I already know that. But then we reach the latter part of the passage. And that's where things get a little weird. I mean, really, if we were to write Acts chapter 15, wouldn't you want to stop at verse 19? I mean, doesn't that feel more comfortable? Isn't that more clear? Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 19. See, even the kids like that idea. Let's just end it at verse 19. Verse 19 is clear. Don't trouble the Gentiles with the talk of obedience to the law being a condition for salvation. We can all cheer for that. Yes! Especially the men. No circumcision! That's my boy. But then comes verse 20 and 21. Frankly, verses 20 and 21 have perplexed people for years. But think with me first. Let's, let's use common sense. Would it make sense in the context of the whole passage that the four things listed in verse 20 and 21 are meant to replace circumcision. So in other words, did the church mean to say, okay, no, you don't have to do that circumcision thing to be right with God. Instead, you got to do these four things. Does that make any sense at all? No. Well, then what does it mean? Why did they say, don't worry about obeying the Old Testament law because it's been fulfilled in Christ. But 
you got to keep these four. Why did they do that? Doesn't that seem a little weird? Well, friends, it's because they were concerned not only that the dispute about grace be settled, that grace be defended. No, they were concerned also that grace would be displayed, that it be shown. That's the rest of the passage will help us understand is what's going on. So look at verse 22. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now again, let me stop there. Would it make sense for them to rejoice if they had one thing they had to do and then it got replaced with four? That, that, that can't possibly be what this means. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. After they'd spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers and those who had been sent with them. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Think back with me to the original question. What does it take for someone to be included in the kingdom of God? Well, that's been clearly answered. It takes hearing the gospel and believing. And the way that happens is by grace. Anyone who turns from sin and trusts in Jesus is all the way in. We've already settled that question, but let's revise it slightly, or let's build on it. Once someone is in the kingdom of God, what kind of lifestyle should they be demonstrating? See, that's a different question. To be a Christian is to take on a whole new way of life. Brothers and sisters, those of you who follow the Lord, there is no aspect of your life or part of your heart or mind over which Jesus does not boldly declare, that's mine. The four things listed in verse 29 are simply describing in a cultural specific way the commitment to the pursuit of daily holiness. Or to put it more directly, Christians are people who worship God and God alone. Now, think back with me, if you could, all the way back to world history. 
back in school. Remember those days? <laughs> Someone said no. There's probably lots of us that would say no. Well, perhaps you'll remember that the Greco-Roman world was filled with idolatry. In fact, in the first century, it was estimated that in the city of Athens, there were more idols than people. Today, when we think about people who don't follow Christianity, we often think about atheists. But those folks did not exist in any broad scope in the ancient world. No, they were polytheists. Anything and everything was a god. And so there were temples and shrines and idols littering the ancient landscape like there are Starbucks today. Gentiles who came from those cultures, accepted a gospel of grace, were embraced in the church, came from having practiced pagan idol worship. What is it that set the Jews apart from the Gentiles? Well, they were circumcised and they didn't worship idols. They were monotheists. And so what this statement is meant to do is to say, if you're coming and trusting in Jesus Christ and being saved by grace and grace alone, then you got to stop worshiping idols made by hands, offering food to the gods as part of pagan worship. you got to quit going to the cult temple and having sex with the prostitutes as part of worship. So this decree you see from the Jerusalem Council declared salvation is by grace and grace alone. And yet it also says, Gentiles, if you'll be part of the new people of God, then understand that that grace which is free will cost you everything. You must forsake idolatry and you cannot go to the temple or feast to gods again. Gentiles need not become Jews in order to be Christians, but Jew and Gentile alike must live with full allegiance and worship to God. You see, the line between the worship and behavior of people who don't know God and the worship and behavior of people who know God ought not be a tiny, indiscriminate, thin line. No, it ought to be as wide as Highway 101. Jesus gave his life so that we'd stop worshiping other gods and be able to worship him. So that we'd be freed up by grace to be gospel-driven worshipers. The Church of Jesus Christ and every true Christian ought to celebrate this news. We are saved by grace and grace alone. And yet, that grace doesn't remain alone. It overflows and sustains lives that are forsaking our old forms of worship and instead worshiping God and God alone. Those four things were meant to say 
Friend, whatever you used to do, that was just like everybody else. That was worshiping gods who are not gods at all. Those things must stop. Not to get in, but because you are in. Christian, Tempe is not overflowing with shrines and pagan altars and temple prostitutes and meat being offered to idols. But there are nonetheless many opportunities you will face this week to worship other gods. Don't do it. For you've been saved by grace and grace alone. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word now would speak to each of us in whatever way we most need to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.